It's episode 17, and we're discussing cutis laxa. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by uh, two clinicians discussing a recent paper on cutis laxa. I've got Dr. Bjorn Fischer Sinyak, fresh from his presentation at the SSIM 2020 virtual meeting, and also Dr. Uwe Kornyak. Hello and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Hello, James. Hi. Um, now, you're here today to talk about your team's recent paper, Expanding the Clinical and Molecular Spectrum of ATP6V1A-Related Metabolic Cutis Laxa. The podcast has quite a varied audience, so I wonder if you could begin by explaining what is cutis laxa and why it happens and why particularly in metabolic conditions. Yeah, well, it's, it's named cutis laxa because this is the most obvious clinical feature which you observe after birth and actually it's very severe at birth usually, the skin phenotype and so many of the other aspects only emerge then later during development or the cutis laxa spectrum is quite a broad disease spectrum. In general, these uh, diseases are multi-system diseases. So the patients have this skin phenotype, which can be observed like lax skin, wrinkled skin, and in, and in many cases also a translucent skin. But they also have a lot of other features like neurological features, skeletal features, vascular features. So quite multi-system conditions. Actually, it, it is dramatic because uh, a considerable part of these kids die early on. So they have problems of adapting and have respiratory problems. And, and if they survive this, then um, they are surprisingly well, actually. It's still an open question in the whole Kutus Laksa field. Many of them are, are very dramatic immediately after birth. And, and then they get better. So it's, it's actually the contrary to progeroid. So, I mean, actually what you would expect if you're discussing a progeroid phenotype, that uh, it's, it's like, like it's, it's, it's a fast aging, but actually it's weird. So, so they look very aged when they are born and then they get better. Also the, the skin wrinkling and so on got, gets better usually. Given that it's present at birth, is there a, an antenatal manifestation as well or would it not be picked up antenatally? Yes, there is an intrauterine growth retardation in many of these, but for the disease in question now, this is not the case. But this, it can be distinguished if, if you have an intrauterine growth retardation, then it, it points towards a certain part of the disease spectrum. Is it always a metabolic condition or is it always something that's going to be of interest to metabolic conditions? Well, it's not always a metabolic condition. So we know about conditions inherited in an autosomal dominant, recessive, and X-linked and X-linked fashion. And um, in the group of the dominant uh, cases, we have mutations affecting components of the extracellular matrix. So there, it's quite obvious why we have these connective tissue uh, features. Also, in the recessive group, we have many genes, proteins affected, which um, are involved in the ECM formation itself or in its modification. But there are also other genes affected, which play a role in the V-type ATPase or in mitochondrial amino acid metabolism. And in these cases, we have metabolic features as well. 
the paper we're talking about today is on ATP6V1A-related metabolic cutis laxa. This is part of the rapidly expanding field of CDG, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so there's several forms of CDGs which also show cutis laxa phenotypes. And actually, most of them are related to defects in the V-type ATPase, so in this large complex pumping protons in within the cell. And there's another group of um, defects which cause uh, CDG and cutis laxa. And, and these are due to defects in proteins which are important for the Golgi. And also this VITPase is apparently very important for Golgi function, which of course does the glycosylation, the post-translational modification, um, including N-glycosylation and also O-glycosylation in the cell. And so this is a common feature. The connection between the two, between the glycosylation and the cutis laxa, however, is not really clear. So as Björn pointed out, I mean, we have also other forms of cutis laxa, which are due to mutations in the extracellular matrix components, and they can look quite similar. Although, of course, they don't have the, the other, uh, especially the central nervous uh, problems of these Golgi-related and CDG-related cutis laxas. And this paper, you were looking to expand the sort of the known clinical and molecular spectrum of the disease. You looked at three cases drawn from two families. What was it you you found? Well, it uh, was a quite long story. So we, uh, one must say. <laughs> The, uh, or the family contacted one of our collaborators uh, from uh, from the paper, and then it took some years, and then we performed finally exome sequencing after a lot of the other candidates were ruled out, and then we found pathogenic variants in uh, ATP6 uh, V1A as the cause. And in 2017, the, the, the interesting thing is that we were contacted because the clinician thought it looked like like. A, a defect in another subunit of this VATPase. And right. I mean, it was so right. <laughs> and uh, of course, we later on thought a bit, we, we were stupid that we <laughs> didn't think about other subunits of this complex. And uh, so you can recognize this, this whole family of disorders because they are somehow overlapping and they, they, they have a common also facial aspect. I think one of the curious things is that the, the pair of siblings that you've described had very different clinical outcomes. So are you able to kind of speculate as to why that was? So I think what we have here, and this is true for several of these cutis laxa conditions, we, we have a severe bottleneck in the first weeks after birth. And many kids really have severe problems to thrive and, and gain weight and in this case, we also have respiratory problems, uh, which we don't understand yet qu quite well. It's partially muscular problems due to hypotonia, probably. And if the kids survive this, this bottleneck, then they get increasingly better with development in, in several aspects, not in all aspects, in all disorders, but in this disorder especially, they really get better. And I mean, I must say, I was completely astonished to hear that this boy that survived, I mean, his brother died shortly after birth and 
the the other sibling survived and he's now uh, doing his a level and is going to normal school and he has the looks of Kutis Laksa still, but he's completely otherwise normally developed. And uh, this is this is the oldest case that we know of this um, with this defect. And uh, I wouldn't have thought that the the affected individuals can develop that normally actually after the dramatic beginning and after birth. And especially because the publication from 2017 initially describing pathogenic variants in this gene it's it's only three affected individuals so we found another three affected individuals so the phenotypic features overlap but one must say it's really ultra rare it's really ultra rare from the 2017 paper there's one individual which is i think 15 at date of publication if i remember correctly he had also massively improved phenotypically, but I mean, in general, the number of affected individuals we know is quite low. And uh, in comparison to the other VATPase components like ATP6V0A2, so there we have at least now, if I remember correctly, more than 40 individuals described. So it's interesting that we only see that small number of individuals with this disease. I mean, do you think that's something that will come with better diagnostics that they, these cases are there that we're, but we're not diagnosing them or these cases just aren't there to be diagnosed? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, well, uh, hmm? you first. So of course we will diagnose them better because of uh, early genetics now and, and which is available. Or even if you don't have it, a clear idea about what you're dealing with you can you can do genetic testing on the other hand i think it will still this this, this particular defect will, will always remain uh, rare because only some mutations can be survived mm -hmm. that's the important point right and that's exactly that what we see here right I mean, in all or most of the affected intervals described so far have biallelic missense alterations. So no loss of protein and so on. But in this particular family we're talking about, it's different. We have a biallelic situation with a missense and a nonsense variant. So we have a severe loss of protein. So maybe here we can also find later on maybe a point why the phenotype is so severe in this family and led to this very early dimness of the um, of the one affected brother so what we think is that a complete biallelic loss of function of this protein is simply not compatible with life so that's that what we think and that might explain why we only have this rare number of affected individuals and mentioned that this brother died very young and then another brother subsequently survived and, and talked about him getting through this severe period of being unwell. We've obviously seen there are some CDG that benefit from therapies around um, sugar supplementation. Is there anything that could be done to help a child survive that that period where they seem to be more unwell or is it was it just good supportive management or bad luck that altered the outcome there? Well, I mean, for me, the question here is whether the CDG is a primary phenotypical feature. So it might be also the case that it is a secondary effect and the real pattern mechanism 
resides in other parts of cellular function, like like protein sorting and so on, like pH differences within the cell and so on. And that the CDG itself is simply a phenomenon which is not directly related to the condition. So therefore, I'm not sure whether sugar supplementation can improve these patients. Yeah, I also would have doubts about that. We don't know why this strong bottleneck and failure to thrive immediately after birth develops. But in this case here, we have um, a strong muscle phenotype. It seems also that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Bjorn, but I think to remember that all the kids that were quite severely affected had sky-high creatine kinase. They have. So they have a strong myopathy. And maybe this is also a reason for the inability to breathe properly in some of them. We don't know exactly. And well, of course, we also know of, of uh, over-glycosylation defects that have m muscle problems. But I think this is another mechanism here. And um, there's also some data included in this paper hinting at this mechanism, right? Exactly. We had muscle biopsies from uh, one uh, affected individual, and they showed altered uh, mitochondria within uh, the muscle itself. So how is the connection from the VATPase, which resides in secretory vesicles and endosomes and so on, to the mitochondria? So one idea was that maybe some transport of different substances through the mitochondria is important impaired and therefore we have a secondary mitochondrial function whether this is true we have to investigate further but maybe this condition shows a link between mitochondrial function and the function of the vatpas uh, one of the things i wanted to talk about was that you've, you've noted that there are some similarities here to infants born with other variants in um, other genes and proteins would you say that these the observation of these three individuals has narrowed or broadened the description of ATP6V1A disease? I think it, it made the description more reliable I would say. <laughs> I mean the diff or, or the overlap between ATP6V1E1 and uh, V1A1 I mean this is quite quite strong overlap one would say and as Uwe pointed out already, I mean, there's also a clear overlap to the other VATPase conditions. Um, there are overlaps to the mitochondrial uh, forms as well, but there are also differences. So to make it short, um, it gave us the opportunity to differentiate some of the, um, some of the conditions from each other, but it, it's complicated. I think we can... <laughs> We can agree on that. <laughs> Clearly it is complicated and, and you've talked about there's lots of different diagnoses that give rise to the, sort of the cutis laxa appearance that can be very striking at birth and distressing for parents, uh, possibly with no antenatal warning that things aren't going to be quite right. For a, a clinician and an etologist um, asked to see a baby born with cutis laxa, what testing regime would you recommend at that stage? I mean, does it just default straight to... Um, exome or genome, or would you uh, recommend some biochemical testing too? Well, I think the biochemical testing is still an important part of, of diagnostics. And the thing is, if you have, like usually, I mean, if you have been working on a group of disorders for quite a long time, you 
you, you, you have, we have been seeing a lot of these ultra rare cases, but in contrast to people who have never been in contact with that, Björn and me would probably immediately recognize <laughs> the disease just by the facial aspect. And uh, so I th think that's, that's also something which is important. But of course, if you don't know where to look at, because you don't have any idea what this is, um, then, then it's just difficult. But they really have highly recognizable face. But of course, uh, biochemical testing is still important. So the CDG uh, guides the way. Although, as you know, the CDGs, especially in this Golgi-related uh, CDGs, so the type 2, they are volatile. So they're not always that clear. So sometimes the early infancy, then you have problems to detect them. Then you have a window where it's quite reliable. And then later on, they can vanish again when the kids get older and better. And for the mitochondrial cutis laxa forms, so the PYCR1 and so on, uh, unfortunately, there is not a clear metabolic feature which can be which can be found. So although it's a it's a proline biosynthetic pathway, proline levels are not significantly reduced. But of course, it's still, I, I think a, a thorough usual workup. Uh, in, in the direction of metabolic disorders is, is, is very important. But of course, nowadays, early genetic testing is a must. Exactly. And I mean, we can connect that to functional testing or to functional investigations. I mean, what we learned, especially for one of the mitochondrial forms, I mean, if cells like fibroblasts and so on are available, they're quite good tests already which can differentiate the different uh, the different forms of cutis laxa for example the uh, within the paper we did the trafficking defect after treatment of the cells for prefaldin a so that already helps to differentiate because all the vatpas um, condition or related conditions have this specific feature while all the other also other golgi um, um, defects don't show this feature Within the mitochondrial form or within the mitochondrial spectrum, mutations in ALDH18A1, so the initial enzyme in, in the synthesis of, uh, for proline. So when we have these cells and treat them with a stabilizotope, it's converted intramitochondrial to proline and we can measure that. And also this, these two tests together can already differentiate between or can already tell us whether it's a VATPase-related condition or one of the mitochondrial-related conditions. So that that works quite good, but that takes time. And uh, yeah, but, but I think this, I mean, in this is an important point because as soon as we find uh, a, a clear mutation that has already been described in other patients, which is unlikely because there are so few patients, we so actually yesterday I saw a, a mutation report from our department here, where two variants of unknown significance in exactly this subunit were mentioned as a possible cause of a, a mental retardation syndrome. And uh, so this will appear also very often with more genetic testing. You will have ever-increasing numbers of these variants of unknown significance. And then what, what do you do? Of course, you can put the puzzle together. You can look at the clinical appearance of the facial appearance, but also these fun simple functional testings in the fibroblast are, are, are highly important 
to decide whether a variant that we find is really pathogenic or not, because we only have to do simple tests and then we can find out whether it, it, the variant is relevant or not. And uh, so genetic testing, yes, of course, very important early and so on. This is clear, but still, this is not necessarily the solution. And, and then we, these additional tests, and of course, parents don't, are not very happy to have skin biopsies taken from their kids, but it can be so helpful to have these cells and to do diagnostic tests. And if, uh, if everything fails and if we don't find the solution, then it's also help, helping in finding maybe novel disease genes. Especially in this group of connective tissue diseases. I mean, um, in other conditions, we always have the problem that the genes of interest are not expressed. But the, the big advantage here is in this disease spectrum, all the genes are regularly expressed within the fibroblasts. So not only the functional tests like deciding for the different subtypes of cutis laxar is possible. No, we can also investigate the effect of the variant itself, like stability of the protein, mRNA expression differences, splice differences, and so on. And this is the big advantage in this disease group. And this makes fibroblasts ex extremely helpful to come to a final conclusion, which is finally that what the family wants. So for the family, it's it's problematic. They get the report and then they have class three variants uh, of uncertain significance within the report. And then you don't know. So therefore, it's good to work the variants up and to come to a final conclusion whether it is the cause or even not. Mm. And especially, as we said, very strong mutations uh, can hardly be survived uh, in this case here in this gene because like, uh, you know, the, the typical easy diagnosis is done if you have a homozygous stop mutation or a compound heterozygous stop mutations, then it's easy. I mean, but here we know that Maximum, we can have one stop. Of course, this could be highly indicative already, but it could also be two missense mutations and maybe rather mild from a human genetics perspective, rather mild missense mutations. And, and then what? How can we decide whether this is the cause or not? As I said, of course, clinical picture and so on is highly important, but also these functional tests can be really helpful to, to nail things down. I mean, I think that's something that we see everywhere is this rapid progression to deep sequencing means we're finding all sorts of things and that the significance isn't always clear. Um, and obviously functional testing and uh, biochemical correlation is always going to be key to our diagnostic process. Thank you both so much for your time. I'm really grateful for you making the sort of space to speak with me this morning. It's been really in enlightening. And for those listening, if you want to go and read this paper, if you go to the journal website and search for ATP6V1A uh, Cutis Laxa, you'll be able to find the paper. It's available open access. And if you'd like to hear more podcasts from the journal, then uh, search for JIMD Podcasts uh, wherever you find yours. Uh, thank you both again for your time. Thanks very much. Thank You're welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>